Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 61, where we're going to cover the findings from the previous month, the month of February for, from the SDRS. My name is Edison Magalhães here at the SDRS studio. Hi, I'm Giovanni Trevisan with the SDRS. Hi, my name is Guilherme, also at SDRS. Hello, Daniel Linhares with the SDRS team. So as I mentioned, today we're going to cover the findings from the month of February from the SDRS. Uh, so we're going to do a, a brief summary on it. And after that, we're going to have a special dis discussion with our invited guest here. We invited Dr. Rebecca Robbins. So we have the pleasure to have her to here today at the SDRS podcast. Dr. Robbins is a health assurance veterinary for PIC North America, and she got her DVM and PhD at North Carolina State University. She has large experiences in swine population medicine having served in leadership positions at Seaboard Foods and Texas A&M uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. Dr. Robbins, thank you, thank you for accepting our invitation and welcome to the SDIS uh, podcast. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for coming to the SDRS, Dr. Robbins. So, Guilherme, let's start to have the fun here. What's the major finding from the SDRS during the month of February? Well, let's start for the first page of the report for the PERS virus that we are having an overall positivity below the expected for this pathogen in the month of February. What is a good news, but when we move to a regional level, we are having an increased activity in Kansas and Ohio when you compare with the specific state baseline of these two states, what, which means that we are having an increased percentage of positive submissions coming from these states. And also looking to the age category, we are having an increased number of percentage of positive submissions coming from the Missouri state compared to the specific baseline that we are going to explain more when we move right now to the sequencing part of the PERS that we also keep track in the SDRS, that the L1C variant continues to spread among the country, among the country and mainly to the eastern states that we start to have detections right now in Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, and also Pennsylvania that's raising a concern in states, for example, like North Carolina that never detected the strain before, but now is getting surrounded by states with positive cases. And But when we talk about the overall situation of the L1C variant, we still have most of the concentration of these detections coming from the Midwest. And for example, that's why we are having an increased activity in Missouri that we are having the highest number of detection coming from this state in 2023 with 140 uh, strains detected coming from this state, followed by Iowa and Minnesota. And they, they are the top three states that are having detection of L1C variant. Great highlights, Guilherme. So moving east, well, it's still PERS. L1C variant still seems like still be a emerging animal health threat. And even though it was concentrated here in the Midwest, now it's moving east. So, Dr. Robbins, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, what may cause this strain to be disseminated through the production systems? And is there something that we can do to prevent this spread in the east region of the country? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great question because I, I, it's a nice time to really highlight for people to remember to investigate their epidemiologic links. So things like coal markets, slaughter plants, any points of aggregation, uh, sharing of equipment um, and infrastructures, uh, pumping equipment, um, and uh, our um, transportation fleet has gotten a lot of um emphasis uh, lately. And so I think we've got to continue to really not 
I don't think we have to necessarily beef up our biosecurity, but we need to make sure that it's being implemented. And so I think getting out there and um, it's a great time to go and ask questions. Um, it is unexpected that it would be moving east because you know the the volume the large volume of pigs moves the opposite direction. Uh, so again, that's why I emphasize really having people go and look for um, what what might even be unexpected epidemiologic links. Um, and so asking those questions, getting out and uh, talking with uh, their contractors and support staff. Um, uh, about the the potential for uh, um, those types of uh, cross contamination, some opportunity for some outbreak investigations in those unexpected sites showing up positive, right? And reveal further reveal those epidemiologic links. It's a good idea. So basically, don't need to reinvent the the wheel, but keep working on the things that you have and be sure that your production system is following what you have have worked in the past as the standard procedures for control dissemination of agents. Absolutely. To, to Daniel's point, those outbreak investigations that I've been involved in, just and this is just a general comment to any a disease outbreak investigation, oftentimes I find that it's not a, a change or a lack, a, a change in something or a, a necessary need to add something is to go out and continue to um, implement at a high, very high level uh, on a continuous basis the uh, things that we've agreed to do on the farms. Great. Guilherme, what do you have for enteric coronavirus? Well, for enteric coronavirus, we also have good news regarding the detection because PED and Delta coronavirus are both we've inspected for the month of February. And another good news is, the, is about TGE that is close to completing two years without any detection in the end of March. We are going to complete this date of not, not even a single positive detection in these 24 months that we are keeping track of these uh, pathogens specifically. And it's important to mention there's not a matter of testing because we continue to test a lot for TGE. So we had 70, 70,000 uh, cases that were tested in the five VDLs that are enrolled in the SRS project. And this is over 260,000 samples that were tested. And even though with this amount of the testing that we are doing, we didn't have any detection of TGE. Yeah, Dr. Robbins, on that, that what Guilherme just mentioned. So a lot of number of cases being tested, but they all negative for, for TGE. Do you see there's opportunity here for, it's probably TGE circulating here in a very low premise in the US. Uh, is, do you see an opportunity for eradicating this virus from the, the swine industry? And if so, uh, opportunity also for other enteric coronavirus such as PD or Delta coronavirus? Yeah, there's, uh, so for TGE, I think you're probably right. I think large commercial systems are probably free. Uh, small holders, uh, maybe like we talked about earlier, some of those aggregation points where we don't do uh, the same level of intensive and continuous monitoring are probably a wild card. You know, really to say we're free, we probably have to do some level of serologic testing um, is it worth it? I don't know. Um, for the industry, uh, it it would certainly be a feather in the cap, though. Um, but the the real uh, you know um, eight hundred pound gorilla is our PED and our our Delta that we continue to battle um, season after season, and recently been a little bit worse. And so, likely, I think there's still reservoirs out there that we haven't really ID'd through our robust. You know, we've got robust testing at the South Farms and our um, guilt 
uh, multiplication. But when we get out to our, you know, grow finish sites, yet again, we see that there's uh, some holes there and we could do probably do a little bit better. Um, I find that um, those sites uh, could be, you know, as a as a whole, you know, could be subclinical as well. It can be very hard to detect in some of these large finishing populations again, where we don't have the same robust um, surveillance uh, testing plans in place. So I think that that's an area that um, if we're going to make a big push, uh, um, published a paper. I guess it's been a couple years ago now where we did that in and. Um, the system at, at Seaboard, and that made a big difference. You had to know where the disease was before you were going to actually make effective changes um, with it. And uh, so I think that um, going back and and really evaluating uh, the value of um, eradication to, uh, within the systems and our industry, and then looking to uh, um, figure out uh, where it is, and then we can, um, I think, you know, be a little more um, laser focused about how to uh, go about elimination. Could be a fun summer project for a student to go and sample those those subsampled areas, right? Uh, under under sample areas like the like you said, the, the holding stations and and some other uh, points of concentration to kind of understand virus activity and perhaps some antibody testing to kind of better understand the TGs true status. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, you can, you can, uh, you know, look at all the SCCDs and the great thing is you guys uh, have, um, you know, worked on the report. So now we can see at the state level. So we're not just having to have this huge shotgun approach. You know, again, we can be a little more targeted with our testing and um, where we're seeing the areas and see if that aligns with where our, uh, you know, large areas of small holdings of pigs or our third party aggregating, you know, coal market slaughter plants, et cetera, which I think uh, in, in my experience have oftentimes been a, a risk point. So um, I, yes, I think we, we've got some opportunity there. Uh, it's the industry's got to take it up. Great comments, Dr. Robbins. Hey, Glamour, what do we have for mycoplasma, and PCV2, influenza, anything in those areas? Yes, uh, for PCV2 specifically, we have an increased activity in the age category of the wind market. But however, the SDRS team, in partnership with some industry allies, we investigate the situation, what was going on. And it seems that this increased activity of PCV2 was correlated with vaccination and vaccination handling issues in the state of Iowa. And these, as a consequence, like increased the number of PCV2 positive cases that we have in these five EDLs. And also the SDRS team will keep like monitoring uh, this case just to ensure there is just a local issue and not like spread into other states. And moving to mycoplasma, uh, we have a unexpected increase uh, number of submissions of mycoplasma in the end of January and like in the month of February right now. Just to have an idea, we have like weekly submissions of 40 or 45 submissions. And now we are having over 60 submissions per week of this pathogen. And some of our uh, advisory member groups, uh, they mentioned that some of the flows where they have some instability with PERS, they're having issues with mycoplasma as well. And also, uh, they some of the production systems, or for, for example, multipliers, they are changing the testing part. Instead of doing serological tests, they are doing more 
deep tracheal swab. So that's why it's increasing the number of submissions and not having a lot of positive cases, but more monitoring, let's say. So that brings a question when when one could hypothesize that if there is increased testing, there's increased uh, pathogen activity, and that's why it's increased testing. But like you said, Guilherme, the positivity remains relatively stable. So turning back to, to Rebecca here, can, can you share your uh, your your thoughts and kind of strategy towards when you're testing for mycoplasma? How what are you looking for, and any any clues on how to interpret this finding of increased submissions, but kind of stable positivity? Yeah, I think we have to highlight again. Uh, it's good to see that the positives haven't increased. Um, yeah, so you know. Mycoplasma, fastidious bug, you know, so we need that time frame, right? If we're, especially if we're going to rely on serology. And, you know, no doubt serology is problematic. Uh, it definitely has yielded us false positives. So, like you said, the use of tracheal swabs um, has be become more common, definitely to clear those false positives. But even when we've got a situation where we may not, um, be able to use the serology with the power, uh, with the confidence that we think we should. I think that that's where you um, start to incorporate the tracheal um, swabbing. And, you know, we've, there's been a lot of emphasis on modernizing our surveillance sampling methods, right? There's uh, been multiple papers being published um, and uh, work in the area of the risk-based surveillance, as well as being able to, um, pool the samples, so making it cost effective to do that that PCR testing and get a, a more real-time um, look. You know, I, you got to remember, though, surveillance approaches, period, are good for herds. They don't always work well for individuals, and that's where I feel like we, we get a little hung up. Um, so, you know, we've got in, in in most of our multiplication herds, we've also got uh, the low prevalence situation as well. So um, not really good for interpreting, you know, a positive, there's not a very good positive predictive value in those low prevalence situations, um, even for the test with great sensitivity. So keep all those things in mind, I think, as we're, uh, you know, applying a testing approach and uh, we'll continue to uh, monitor to see if this is a, um, a uh, abbreviated period where we're seeing an increase in submissions or, you know, it uh, continues. From what you can, you can, uh, you can see and hear and participate, uh, are the big, big, big systems projects towards mycoplasma elimination still, still, still going on and still solid? Yeah, I think, I think people have, um, well, several reasons, right? You know, we have, if you're most guilts uh, available these days are negative. So unless you want to turn them positive, which is possible, <laughs> I've shared that method uh, with folks um, to, uh, you know, you can um, acclimate them safely, uh, but, you know, you've got to have a place to do that. And again, you know, because the the, the bug, you need a, some time to be able to do it. And um, so I, I think that more and more people um, are looking at the benefits and Daniel, you and, and Dr. Yeski have published on this as well. There's economic benefit to getting rid of this bug um, 
even even if you still have other endemics in place. So I think that those are the two reasons that we're going to continue to see the industry um, work intensively on mycoplasma. Great comments. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Robbins. Hey, Guilherme, anything else from the CRS? Yeah, like moving to the influenza right now that we are having a decreased activity in February, but this is expected for this pathogen in this period of the year. But however, we would like to remind our audience that the spring months are coming and historically we are expecting to have an increased detection of this pathogen this spring. So get prepared for the influenza that might be increasing the next months in terms of activity. And moving to the confirmed tissue diagnosis, there are the submissions of tissue to the ISU-VDL that the diagnosticians assign a diagnostic code based on clinical signs and also historical findings and histological lesions. Uh, we are monitoring that, that even though we are having a a fewer cases, we have an increase in the number of cases of confirmed tissue diagnosis of Delta coronavirus, coccidiosis, Trupillaral pyogenes and also Lawsonia intracellulares during January and February. So this kind of ends our findings from the SDRS, but I would like to move to our last question to our guest, Dr. Robbins, that in the advisory group discussions, Dr. Robbins, you mentioned uh, some of the situations that you use the SDRS data for your daily tasks, for example, uh, informing producers and other veterinarians about pathogen activity. So could you share a little bit with our audience, how do you use the SDRS data for animal health decisions? Yeah, it's a great report to have when you're having discussions with uh, people in a region or maybe across multiple states. You know, we used to have to pick up the phone and spend quite a bit of time and then sort through, um, you know, the quality of those uh, phone calls and the information you were getting. Uh, now it's right here at our fingertips in these dashboards. So it's wonderful. Recently, I've incorporated um, the, uh, some screenshots from our from the dashboards to commute to add into outbreak investigations that I've uh, shared with producers and uh, to be able for them to uh, have discussions um, around what their risk is in a, in an area during that period of time so that um, they can have more awareness um, again it it uh, makes that uh, idea of uh, finding out what your regional risk is a lot more efficient when you've got those dashboards. Uh, you also highlighted having the etiologic uh, diagnostic summaries, which are a fantastic addition uh, because, you know, we've with surveillance testing, we're focusing on detection, it doesn't always mean disease. And when you've got those etiologic summaries, you can um, really talk with people about uh, what's meaningful out there um, causing mortality and um, even pick up some of these, uh, you know, what may be um, one-off um, increases in things like PCVAD, which is a, a difficult disease to monitor for um, with just a PCR surveillance plan. So it's great to have been incorporated those into the uh, the report and the dashboards. So keep up the great work, guys. I think that this is um, a, a wonderful service we have in the U.S., uh, definitely unique to um, for our industry, and I, I think it'll continue to make us better. That's great, Dr. Robbins. Thank you for that. And I would like to remind our audience to, to have access to these dashboards that Dr. Robbins are mentioning. Just can go to the SDRS website and check this dashboard. They are available for everyone, not only the advisory group members, but also our audience that is interested to see this kind of activity. 
and how they can do if they want to receive the report in their email, Guilherme. Yeah, if they want to receive the PDF file, they can just uh, send an email to myself or any of the SDRS members here to enroll and also the SDRS email that is SDRS at istate.edu. Very good, guys. Thanks, Dr. Robbins, for your time. Uh, thanks for participating on this discussion. Like you guys discussed, the SDRS, we're bringing this, this information, but it's very important to have the advisory group and you guys giving us the feedback on how you guys use the data and what improvements we can make and that help us to drive and improve the, the, the project. And that Welcome was back it. to the program. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to work with you guys and really excited to see where we continue to uh, progress as an industry. Very good. That was it guys. Thanks for listening to us and watching us on this episode. Very good. And see you guys next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.